invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the back and then flip a few pages left and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Technically we're starting with the last verse of chapter 11. Chapter 11 verse 19 is where we'll begin. And we're going to attempt to get through all of chapter 12 today, so bear with me. Uh, I'm going to try to move quickly. There's a lot here, but I'm going to try to move at a good pace. Um, excited to get back into Revelation. We spent the last couple of months uh, on, on a hiatus from the book after we walked through the first really half of it. So Revelation is divided into these two major parts. The first 11 chapters uh, dealing with uh, the church and its conflict with the world. All right? So the church's conflict on earth. And so we see human governments and we see uh, pressuring neighbors and, and world systems um, against God's people and the church fighting back and, and, uh, and, and staying true to Christ in the midst of all of that. And we've seen, indeed, in that first half, we saw three full cycles, if you will, that span uh, human history, or really, more specifically, the, the range of time between Christ's resurrection and ascension to heaven and his coming Return. So we've seen three cycles through the course of the first 11 chapters that span that whole stretch of time. And so we see all of uh, that era, that this age that we live in, and we get to the end and Christ returns and judgment comes and the, 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 wicked, uh, excuse me, the righteous are saved. And then it goes back and starts over and looks at a different, uh, through a different lens. That's what's been going on and that will continue. So what we see today begins uh, the, the fourth cycle that spans the age between Christ's resurrection and ascension and his uh, future return. And it also begins the second major division of the book of Revelation, which, peel, which peeks behind the veil, if you will, of the physical realm and sees uh, the, the unfolding of human history from a cosmic perspective. And so if the first 11 chapters dealt with uh, the church's conflict on earth, chapters 12 through 22 really look at Christ's conflict with the devil, or as he's portrayed here, the dragon. Christ's conflict with the dragon. So this is the sort of cosmic spiritual uh, battle that, uh, that takes up the second half of the book of Revelation. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, human beings always, as long as human beings have been around, have been fascinated by grand, epic stories of good versus evil, right? Every culture has its versions of sort of the, uh, the epic narrative or the epic poem uh, that, that pits ultimate good versus ultimate evil. And there's this battling out of of the forces of good versus the forces of evil. And of course the reader hopes and longs and waits to see is good going to triumph. Uh, ancient cultures, uh, even back in the, the days of the Bible and well uh, further back than that, had their, their mythologies of, of deities and, and, uh, that would fight against sort of uh, cosmic monsters. So every culture has its stories of the, the sort of forces of good, the gods, the deities, whatever version that takes, taking on the sort of big, bad, evil monsters, right? 
And so Revelation, very interestingly, this vision, remember that, that Jesus, through an angel, is giving to John, Revelation uh, sort of uses that mythology, that the structure of this sort of uh, mythical, uh, fantastical, uh, good versus evil, uh, hero versus monster kind of uh, narrative, uh, and portrays the work of Jesus against the devil and the fight of the church against the world uh, in these grand cosmic kind of mythological terms, which is not to suggest, of course, that it's not true, just that John, uh, in his uh, writing of this vision, is, is using this well-known and well-identified uh, uh, pattern of uh, of good versus evil and, and the scope of this grand narrative that encompasses all of time and space and, and human history. And he takes that sort of mythology, that shape, and, and, and appropriates it in the telling of its true story of history. And what we see in chapter 12 is the story of the woman and the dragon. So we're going to start uh, very quickly looking at uh, chapter 11, verse 19. Um, it's really a pivot verse from what came before it and what comes after it. So uh, it, it would have been uh, perfectly, I think, fitting for me to have included that in my message on chapter 11, uh, where we saw the seventh and final trumpet of judgment blow. And when that seventh and final trumpet sounded, that represented the full and final judgment of God upon sin and his gathering up of his people into his eternal kingdom and all was right uh, with with the world and Christ's kingdom was established and so look with me at verse 19 of chapter 11 it says then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple there were flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder an earthquake and heavy hail and so now that God's work has been done and the judgment has fallen and Christ's kingdom is established, the temple is open, right? The, the dwelling of God is with his people. And it says there that the Ark of the Covenant is seen. The Ark of the Covenant uh, in, under the Old Covenant would, would dwell in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, and only the high priest was able to enter and see the Ark of the Covenant, and he only got to do it one day a year. And they took lots of precautions when he were, was entering the Holy of Holies because it represented the very presence of the holy, righteous God. And it was removed from the people because of their sin and, and his holiness. But now, the Ark of the Covenant is seen within the open temple. And so God is dwelling again with his people and there is unbroken, unfettered, unrestricted access. And so that's the amazing and beautiful end of all things and the result of Christ's work in his life and death and resurrection and what he will establish at his return. And then the, the flashes of lightning and the rumblings of thunder, we've seen that two other places in Revelation. In chapter 4, Verse 5, as we were introduced to the throne room of God, John saw flashes of lightning and heard rumblings of thunder coming forth from the throne of God. 
We saw it again in chapter 8, verse 5, where the prayers of the saints around the throne of God rose up to him, and from the throne came peals of thunder and, and flashes of lightning. And so the thunder and lightning always represents the powerful, majestic presence of God. And so again, the point of chapter 11, verse 19 is the end of all things for his people is glory. It's God's presence. It's unfettered, unrestricted access to him. That's the way that things end. And so then verse 1 of chapter 12 starts a new section and a new vision. And so we see in this chapter, really in the coming few chapters, uh, the, the narrative of world history in cosmic perspective. And chapter 12 gives us three acts, if you will. The first act, I'm going to read to you right now, is, is chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And the first act is this, the deliverer has appeared. The deliverer has appeared. Here's chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The first act shows us that the Deliverer has appeared. And we're introduced to uh, two of the major players, the major characters, if you will, in this narrative. The woman and the dragon, and indeed the child, who is, uh, of course, the, the hero of not just this particular story, but all of the book of Revelation. The woman represents the people of God, represents the church of Jesus. Um, and, and there's a few reasons uh, to, to see it that way. Um, the, the, she's said to have with her the radiance of the sun, or she shines with the sun, and she has the moon under her feet. And I think that that's a, a portrayal, a picture of the shared rule of the people of God with Christ. Jesus has said in, in uh, his letters uh, in the first section of Revelation, he said to, to one of the churches that uh, to the one who conquers, I will give him a share in my uh, rule, right? He will reign with me. We've seen this as kind of a recurring theme in Revelation, that something uh, of God's purposes for his people is to raise them up and indeed to share in the rule of his eternal kingdom. And so I think the woman with this, uh, the strength of the sun and the moon beneath her feet is a picture of, of rule and authority. It's a shared rule with Christ. The fact that it's a woman uh, makes us think of the role of the church as the bride 
of Christ. And even in the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel were, were portrayed at times as, as God's bride, right? God is the husband, the faithful husband, and Israel is his unfaithful bride. That's a recurring image as well. And so it's not too strange to see a woman and to see that as picturing the church, as all the redeemed, Jew and Gentile alike, uh, through Jesus Christ. And so, once again, the crown of 12 stars that she wears uh, seems to picture the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and as a crown is another picture of, of authority and rule. And we've already seen in chapter 7 the 12 tribes of Israel specifically representing not just national or ethnic Israel, but all the church, right? All of the redeemed in Christ uh, are uh, the, the people of God um, uh, designated by the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So the woman here is the people of God, all right? So Old Testament and New Testament together, the church of Jesus Christ is represented by this woman. And the woman is giving birth. And I think that there is, uh, Tom Schreiner does, uh, really helpfully points out the, the sort of messianic hope of the people of God in the Old Covenant. And uh, indeed, uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 17, portrays uh, Israel's hope of a deliverer in terms of a woman in the pangs of birth, right? It says, uh, like a pregnant woman who rides and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, that's the, uh, the, the, the posture and the sense of the people of God under the old covenant longing for and waiting for the deliverer to come. And so the woman giving birth is a little bit of an image of the Old Testament people of God before Christ's coming in their longing and in their waiting, their birth pains, if you will, in looking for a redeemer and a deliverer to come. And so in a way, the sign of uh, the woman giving birth is a depiction of Israel's messianic hope for a deliverer, uh, and it's finally realized, right? The woman is giving birth, and so it's like their, their hopes for a deliverer are finally coming to fruition in this woman giving birth. We're introduced, of course, to the child that she bore. Uh, and we see down in verse 5, he is uh, given some, some very vivid uh, designations, and it makes it extremely clear. Uh, virtually no commentators on the book of Revelation are divided about who this is. Look at verse 5. It says, She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is language from Psalm 2, verse 9. And Psalm 2 is a, a well-known messianic psalm. Uh, that is pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Deliverer. Uh, and it speaks of the one that God would send ruling over the nations with an iron scepter. And so it uses that language, that messianic language, and applies it to the son that the woman was giving birth to. It says, so it says that he was uh, to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne which is a reference to his resurrection and ascension, the exaltation of Jesus after his death. And so very clearly the child here is Jesus. He is the male child that was to rule the nations with a rod of iron and the one who was caught up to God and to his throne in his exaltation by ascending into heaven. And then finally we're introduced to the dragon. And again, in case you weren't sure 
who this was. He tells us a little bit later, and we'll come to these, these verses in a few minutes, but in verse 9, he tells us of the great dragon that he's also that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So it's very clear who the dragon represents. John doesn't leave us wondering. The dragon is the devil. It's that ancient serpent who uh, deceived Eve and Adam in the garden and has been working ever since to accuse God's people and to deceive the world and lead them astray. This is Satan himself depicted as this great dragon. And look at the way he's described. He's got ten horns and seven heads with seven crowns. That's what a diadem is. It's a crown. And the horns uh, seem to be a picture of strength, right? Of, of power. And, and the, the seven heads with seven crowns represents uh, authority. And uh, I've read somebody that, that said that, that the, the way that he's presented here is sort of as a parody of Jesus. We have seen Jesus elsewhere in the book of Revelation with horns and with a crown. And he's, of course, the true king. But the dragon, the devil here, presents himself as sort of a, a false version of Jesus, right? So he claims for himself full authority. And he claims for himself uh, omnipotence and full strength. And yet, of course, we know that that's not the truth. But that's how he's presented. One more layer to this, uh, for those who are interested in sort of cross-referencing and tracing some of this back to the Old Testament, which Revelation draws heavily from, uh, Daniel has a vision in chapter 7 of his book where he sees a beast with ten horns. And in that vision, uh, the ten horns are said to, to, to represent great kings of the earth arising and taking power and making war against God uh, and his people. Uh, Tom Schreiner says, The link between the numbers of the dragon and the number of human rulers suggests the dragon manifests himself in and through human rulers and authorities. So it's not just to say that the devil has a power and authority. It's to say that the devil expresses power and authority through human institutions and human authorities. So from our perspective, in the physical realm, it looks to us just like, you know, kings and those in, in political authority, etc. But behind those authorities is often a demonic strength, the devil himself. It says that his tail swept a third stars to earth, and another reference in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, describes a persecution of God's people under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted God's people in the 3rd century B.C. And so the, uh, the, the knocking down of the stars seems to be a reference to the devil's uh, persecution of God's people, which again you've seen as a recurring theme uh, in the book of Revelation. So in other words, behind the tangible human evil of a pagan emperor, for example, was the invisible spiritual evil of Satan. And so in the human realm where we live, Satan is at work, and Satan's power is expressed. Now, remember, the devil will always make himself obvious, right? We're not necessarily on the lookout for, uh, you know, a guy with red skin and horns and carrying a pitchfork, you know, like he's portrayed in all the movies and, and comic books. Um, we are to look for systems and 
expressions of human authority and ideologies that set themselves up against God and his ways and his righteousness, that, that indeed set themselves against God's people and persecute uh, the church. Broken human systems, distort, distorted expressions of authority, corrupt civil governments, wicked ideologies that confuse and enslave people. These are the ways that Satan is working in our world and through these systems. And if you're looking uh, at the world around us now, you don't have to squint too hard uh, to see these kinds of things uh, at work even now, all around us. This is the devil at work through wicked human systems and authorities. So those are the characters. The woman representing the people of God, the child who is the Christ, Jesus himself, who is to rule over the nations, and the dragon, who represents the devil, who represents Satan and his opposition to God and his people. Now let's look at what the dragon is trying to do. He is waiting as though he's the, you know, the delivering doctor, right? The woman is there ready to give birth and the dragon is there. He's got his, you know, scrubs on and his mask. And he's like, come on, give, give the baby to old Dr. Dragon. And he's there to receive the baby so that he can devour him. He is there to devour the child, but he's not successful, is he? He tries to devour the child. Think of, even back in the Old Testament, think of Pharaoh's attempt in the book of Exodus to uh, murder all of the Hebrew boys from which Moses himself was, was saved and delivered into the house of Pharaoh to be raised up as a deliverer to the people of Israel. Think of... Uh, at, at, at the birth of Jesus, think of Herod and his attempt to have all uh, children who were two and under killed, to, to snuff out the, the sort of threat to his own king, kingdom, right? We're not saying that Pharaoh was Satan. We're not saying that Herod is Satan. What we're saying is Satan is at work in leaders like that who are explicitly attempting in the biblical narrative to devour the child, right? To devour the seed of the woman. Think of the cross of Calvary, where sinful men with evil purposes conspire to put the sinless Son of God on a criminal's cross. In all this and so many more ways, the dragon is attempting to devour the child born to the woman. But he is again and again and again unsuccessful. We're told in verse 5, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Christ was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven at God's right hand. So Satan's efforts to snuff out his life and to thwart his mission fail entirely. So the good news of Act 1 in the cosmic drama, the Deliverer has appeared. The Deliverer has come, and indeed the dragon's attempt to devour him has failed. Look at verse 6 before we go on to the second act. Verse 6 says, The woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The woman now seems to have sort of shifted from the Old Testament people of God to the New Testament expression of the people of God, the, the church of Jesus Christ. 
as she is now on the run from the dragon after Christ has been uh, ascended into heaven, right? So Christ has gone into heaven, and now the dragon is uh, on the run, uh, or the woman is, is fleeing into the wilderness. And we'll talk more about her time in the wilderness uh, in a few minutes uh, on the backside of, of this passage. Act 2, the accuser has been defeated. The accuser has been defeated. Let's read verses 7 through 12 together and see the good news about the, of the accuser's defeat. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So the cosmic drama continues with a great battle in heaven between the archangel Michael and all of uh, God's angels against the dragon and all of his angels, right? His, his rebellious angels. And there's this war in heaven of these angelic armies fighting against one another. And I think that that battle refers not to Satan's opposition to God and his people throughout all of history. I think it's looking, it's sort of zooming in at that specific time of Christ's resurrection and ascension, his exaltation in glory. And at that time, in, in terms of redemptive history, when Christ was raised and exalted into the heavens, Satan lost his footing in heaven. And there's this battle that goes on, and Satan is defeated and cast down. The great dragon was thrown down. It's specifically referring to the casting out of heaven of the devil by the decisive victory of Jesus at the cross. If you think back to Job, uh, chapter 1 of Job portrays Satan walking around in heaven. And he comes into the presence of God and strikes up a conversation about Job. And, and what he's doing in Job chapter 1, as he's walking around heaven, is accusing the people of God. He's looking for people who, who say they trust God that he can say, uh, 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 look at what's really there. And that's indeed what the drama of Job is all about. He's, you know, God says, have you considered Job? And Satan's like, well, of course he trusts you because you've given him everything. Take away that stuff and he's going to curse your name, right? And so Satan is accusing Job, a righteous man, and saying, he, he ain't going to stand up. He doesn't really love you. He just loves that you've given him stuff. So Satan is in heaven accusing God's people. But now, by the substitutionary death of Jesus in the place of his people, 
and by his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, Satan and his rebellious angels have been banished from heaven. Satan no longer has footing. Satan no longer has a standing in heaven. Satan's accusations no longer hold any power because Christ's death and resurrection have made his people righteous. Praise God. It is not our own righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness given to us, imputed to us by faith. And because of Christ's victory at Calvary, the devil's prosecution against God's people has been silenced. And we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus. Listen, you need to hear this word this morning. The things in your life that you are the most ashamed of, the sins and struggles that you fear will keep you from God's presence or hinder God's blessings in your life, no longer stand against you. Satan's earnest attempts to bring charges against you before God land on deaf ears. Because of Christ's victory in the cross and resurrection, Satan has been cast out and God no longer listens to his accusations against you. What good news. Romans 8.1 declares, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has made us righteous and Christ has kicked Satan out of heaven and he doesn't hear his accusations anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Martin Luther famously said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Praise God. The accuser has been cast down. The accuser has been defeated. And because the dragon has been thrown down, verse 11 tells us that the saints have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Because they love not their lives, even unto death. Now the conquering of the people of God is a recurring theme. Every one of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 ended with a promise to the one who conquers. right? And conquering is seen as, as persevering faith. It's seen as remaining true to Jesus no matter what comes against us. And we're told here that they're conquering the people of God's conquering of the dragon was purchased by Christ's blood. They conquer by the blood of the Lamb. And it's appropriated, if you will, it's placed actively into their lives by their perseverance in faith. Right? The word of their testimony, because they love not their lives even unto death. Their willingness to testify to Christ's gospel even through martyrdom. And it may be that you and I will face the same kind of trial someday. We can't necessarily foresee those circumstances, and we're not terribly close to them right now. But who knows, but that there might be a day 
when we will be forced to trust in Jesus in the face of death, in the face of the threat of our very lives. May we, like Antipas, who was mentioned in one of the letters as well, and like these faithful saints who are seen here as, as loving not their lives unto death, may we stay true to Jesus Christ no matter what happens. So the good news of Act 2 in the cosmic drama is that the accuser has been defeated. The dragon has been thrown down. But the next verse sets the scene for the drama of history to unfold. In verse 12, those in heaven rejoice at Christ's victory. But it says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So he's been cast down from heaven, but that doesn't mean he's going to give up. That doesn't mean he's going down without a fight. It just means he's changed the focus of his battle plans, right? He's redrawn uh, his, his battle plans, and now he's coming after the people of God. Act 3 shows us the good news that the church is protected. The church is protected. Let's read verses 13 through 17, and we'll find this reality. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Having been cast down to earth, Vanquished from heaven by Christ's victory at the cross, the dragon now turns his wrath upon the people of God. And that's seen in kind of two stages in these verses. The first one is that the dragon pursues the woman who gave birth to the child. Remember back uh, uh, in the first verses of this chapter that the, the dragon was attempting to devour the child. And that plan failed. And so now he's been cast down to the earth and so he's going to pursue the woman who gave birth to the child. The woman is taken away from the serpent, given wings of eagles and flown uh, into the wilderness. And what I think we need to see about the wilderness in, in this passage, again, remembering that it's all very fantastical and, um, and, and has this mythological quality, so we're clearly dealing with symbols here. The, the wilderness represents the church's tribulation and persecution in the world. The wilderness is this whole present evil age between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And it even sort of pictures uh, Israel's journey from Egypt, where God led them out of slavery, into the wilderness where they wandered for 40, actually probably 42 years technically, and then they entered eventually into the promised land. And the wilderness then was this, this, this place between the bondage and the deliverance, right? They had been freed from their bondage, but nevertheless, 
they are still in this period of waiting and tension as they uh, wander and await the, the entering of the promised land. And so the church, the people of God in this age, are in a, a wilderness. We've been delivered, right? We've been delivered from uh, the power of sin and the penalty of sin. Uh, we've been uh, delivered the accuser who's telling God all the bad stuff about us. And God's like, I'm not listening to that anymore. We've been delivered, but we're still in this broken place. We're still under the, uh, the, the pressures and the temptations and the deceptions of, of the devil in this broken uh, world system. And there's a promised land yet to come, right? The eternal uh, kingdom of Christ fully realized. And so we're in this tension, this already not yet reality. And then we're told that, that the woman is nourished in the wilderness, taken care of by God for a time, times, and half a time. Here's what I want you to see about that. A time is a year, times is two years, and a half a time is a half a year. So we're talking about three and a half years. And if you'll back up, you'll see that uh, in verse 6, the woman uh, went, it, fled into the wilderness to be nourished, it said, for 1,260 days, which is what? Three and a half years. And down in verse 14, actually, uh, or excuse me, later, we're told uh, that, that this period is 42 months long, which is, again, three and a half years. I believe that this is the same time period that was depicted at the beginning of chapter 11. If you'll remember, I know that was a while ago, but God's two witnesses that he empowers to prophesy Again, they, I believe, representing the church, the people of God on the world. Uh, he, he said in, in uh, chapter 11, verses 2, that the nations would trample uh, the outer court of a temple, the holy city of God, for 42 months. And then that, the, the, that God's witnesses, representing the church, would be empowered to prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, 42 months, 1,260 days. And what, we, what that represented was the entirety of this age between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. The, peop, the people of God would be pressured and persecuted, but given authority by God to prophesy. That is to tell forth the word of God and proclaim the gospel. And so I think when we see that three and a half year period crop up again here, we're not looking, in my view, there are those who see it this way, but in my view, we're not looking at half of a seven-year period of tribulation at the end of human history. We're looking at this age now. We're looking at the age between the ascension and return of Christ. So that three and a half years is the tribulation in which we are living, leading up to the future return of Christ. And the fact that the woman is nourished for this period of time tells us a precious and powerful truth. While the devil persecutes the people of God in this age, the Lord protects and preserves his people. We are nourished for a time and times and half a time. We are protected and provided for by the hand of God. Now the devil uses every weapon in his arsenal, every tool that's at his disposal in an effort to destroy the church, and thwart her mission. And that is spoken of here uh, in terms of him uh, pouring out water from his mouth in an attempt to, to flood the woman away. 
but God makes a way of escape, right? God provides the needed help for his people. And in this, again, narrative that's unfolded here, that's in terms of the earth itself sort of swallowing up all of the water, the earth coming to the aid of the woman. Namely, God will rescue his people in whatever way necessary. And if you're thinking about the journey of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness and into the promised land, I'm sure you remember that the waters of the earth parted so that they could pass through and then closed upon the Egyptians to uh, drown them and to, to destroy their enemies. And so, uh, once again, the dragon's pursuit fails. So he has gone after the woman, but the woman has led her away into the wilderness and he's protected her and cared for her and delivered her from uh, the, the threats and uh, schemes of the dragon. And so his pursuit fails. And now, finally, the last half of verse 17, the dragon makes war on the rest of the woman's offspring, which is just another way of depicting the people of God. This is, this is all of the individuals, if you will, who are uh, purchased by the blood of Christ and trusting in him. We're told uh, that he went after, quote, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of of Jesus, right? These are the people on earth who, com who comprise the redeemed people of God. Those who conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Those who love not their lives even unto death. This is the people of God in this wicked age. Pressured, pursued, persecuted by the dragon, and yet faithfully preserved by God. That doesn't mean we won't face danger. That doesn't mean we won't be harmed. That doesn't mean that even our lives physically will be spared because we know there are many who have given their lives for Jesus. But what it means is even if we are to die, we will be ultimately saved. We will be ultimately preserved in his forever kingdom. And then the chapter ends with a phrase that really just, uh, it's sort of the cliffhanger at the end of the episode, where you're like, what's going to happen now? It ends saying, and he, that is the dragon, he stood on the sand of the sea. So it ends with the dragon looking out to sea, and indeed in chapter 13, he will summon the help of some fearsome allies that we'll meet uh, next week when we look at chapter 13. So this cosmic drama, this mythological sort of tale, depicts the very real, but often invisible realities of this spiritual battle. Christ and his angels against Satan and his demons. And Satan rails and rages against the people of God through broken human systems and corrupt governments and belief systems and philosophies that enslave and entangle and drag people away from God. He is working to deceive the world. But God is protecting and preserving his people. Friends, all who are trusting in Jesus Christ are fully his. While the dragon rages against us throughout this age and our lives will be marked by temptation and worldly pressures and, and even persecutions, our God will hold safe in his hand all whose faith is in the blood 
of the Lamb. I'll conclude with words from Luther's famous hymn. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray together.